attempts at trying to create things from scratch instead of looking to the past and trying to pull from the past are somewhat foolish and hubristic in the sense that there's a reason that these systems developed the way that they did over time, iteratively. Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast, positive solutions to help you thrive, homestead, garden, and designing your intentional life. Welcome back to Thrive in the Future. I have Ashley Colby with me. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you so much, Scott. Glad to be here. So give a little background about yourself. So I am um, an American. I grew up in Chicago. I, I went on a whole sort of weird trajectory that included getting a scholarship to a fancy university, um, then kind of dropping out a little bit and traveling the world for a while, truck driver, 18-wheel truck driver for a little bit, then went to grad school and got my PhD focused on environmental sociology. And I, for that, talked to people who produce food for their own consumption in Chicago, where I'm from. Wow. And that work and the PhD and that whole trajectory of my adulthood kind of got me convinced to move out of the U.S. So my husband and I bought some land in Uruguay. We have nine acres and three little girls. And for work, I ho- I host uh, American University students here in Uruguay on like a cultural exchange where they work with local farmers. They do some natural building, alternative sanitation projects, things like that, so they can learn hands-on you know, what sustainability looks like in practice here. My own podcast is the Doomer Optimism Podcast, and I think similar themes to yours, you know, just talking to people who who are exploring resilience um, in various ways and just kind of talking to them about what they're learning and what are the best practices and what what are their pitfalls and all of that kind of stuff. So the life and work are all part of a similar kind of trajectory vocation that's towards, you know, resilience, sustainability, and trying to figure out, I guess, like the way to live a good life. Sure. So how did you choose Uruguay? What was the deciding factors? My husband is a, before we moved here, was a high school Spanish teacher mm-hmm. and he taught in, in college too. Um, and we both studied abroad and kind of had the idea that living abroad would be a good idea for various reasons. That's not the part you asked me, but why we chose Uruguay, we had a short list and it was very <laughs> nerdy. It was very spreadsheet brain. This is my, one of my terms <laughs> that I have coined which is uh, thinking about everything in terms of like lists and data and that kind of thing. But, you know, we looked at things like um, political stability, social stability, like access to fresh water, um, sea level rise, uh, soil quality, you know, all this kind of, um, you know, access to um, universal health care was a really big one because in the U.S. it's kind of like this treadmill where you have to, be working to be able to get healthcare or the deductibles can ruin you and this kind of thing. And I just wanted to be out of that treadmill so that we could have a little bit more freedom to um, to choose work in a more flexible way and still have access to healthcare, um, good education, um, and and then be able to speak the language or learn it. Spanish was is like my husband obviously is an expert Spanish te- uh, speaker and teacher. Um, and Spanish is easy to learn, like easier than Romanian or something. Um, yeah, and so real straightforward. Yep. Yes. And like for an English speaker, it's not very hard. Um, and then being able to immigrate um, cost of living, like the immigration process is really hard 
for Americans in Europe, for example, but it's not very hard here at all because uh, Uruguay is kind of like a, um, it's like a crossroads between Brazil and Argentina in the sense mm -hmm. that a lot of people have second homes here and those are like much bigger countries. And this is kind of like the vacation country for a lot of those um, people in Brazil and Argentina. And so there's just really lax rules for owning property and residency and that kind of thing. It was really easy relative oh. to other places. Lots of, lots of beer, lots of paperwork, but really like easy and straightforward. Yeah. So how did you get universal healthcare being an expat? So everybody gets it, even if you're mm -hmm. like newly, um, uh, I mean, probably not if you're on a tourist visa, but even if you're like newly applying for residency, uh, everybody has access to universal health care um, here. And then the way we pay into it or the way it's typically paid into is, um, I think for rural, it's either through your job, you you have to pay some sort of taxes, or if you live rurally, uh, and a lot of people here are, are their main job is rural self rural production you know yeah. either farming or self production for self consumption and so we pay uh for our the health insurance through our properties and it works out to like 200 bucks a month for our family of five which is mm -hmm. great and our well there's no such thing as a deductible and like our co-pays are like eight dollars or something like that so wow um, yeah that's amazing yeah <laughs> you're gonna sell a lot of people are going going to <laughs> i know i know i don't really mean to be doing that but yeah Oh, well, that's good. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was your tweet really intrigued me. And then also the recent episode you had about uh, religion. But this one, the tweet, a big question for me is, if the majority of your tradition has been lost at least a generation or two back, what's the best way to rebuild? Yeah. So what what's the um, context behind that? And what are some of the solutions you've seen? I think this is basically probably the question I'm spending my life trying to answer. And the framing of the question is for everything, like every part of our lives, education, marriage, child rearing, vocation, the economy, you know, like spirituality, all of this stuff. And, you know, a little backstory in my travels, um, a lot, I went, I used, an, I worked with an organization called WOOF, Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms, yep, which is yeah. like a work. Yeah, it's like a work exchange um, where in return for working on organic farms, um, you get to stay. Sometimes you get food too. Um, in And so it's like a cheap way to travel. And so I traveled that way um, in my little travel period. Mm -hmm. And I stayed at a lot of um, traditional farms. And then I stayed at a lot of places that were like intentional communities or ecological communities or this kind of thing. And I've, I observed that those that did not have a strong, the intentional communities that did not have a strong, like, you know, basically set of moral principles or a sense of what's sacred and profane or a sense of even something like how does ownership work? How does governance work? Um, because people are trying to make so much up from scratch instead of learning from tradition, um, or pulling from already existing systems that have developed over time, they um, they were just really dysfunctional. And, you know, I, I came to the conclusion that a lot of these attempts at trying to create things from scratch instead of looking to the past and trying to pull from the past are somewhat foolish and hubristic in the sense that there's a reason that these systems developed the way that they did 
over time iteratively now so okay I came up with that understanding this is my own assumption you know being at these different places so what does that mean in practice I mean it doesn't mean go back to all the traditions or go pick some point in time where the traditions worked perfectly because they never did they were always in context there was always a you know a trade-off for whatever tradition that existed and so for me I'm kind of just trying to explore what um what learning from the past might mean for a modern person Mm -hmm. uh, and which parts and which are most relevant and you know from which time in history that kind of thing so we could go through different topic areas if you're interested or you know if you want um but like yeah the i mean i don't know you tell me which one maybe religion i don't know which one you would prefer there's like religion and the family, marriage, childhood. So yeah, so let's let's talk about culture first. <laughs> so one of the one of the quotes that I had that I uh, looked at this week was David Fleming's quote from Lean Logic, right, on culture. The culture of a community is its art, its music, dance, skills, traditions, virtues, humor, carnival, conventions and conversations. These give structure and shape to community like the foundational vertical strands used in basket making round which you wind the texture of the basket itself because culture keeps social capital alive and upright, end quote. So one of the things that stood out for me about that was I always thought culture was like the output of those, those things were the output of culture. Dance was the output of culture. Conversation was the output of culture. But then he's saying that it, it is the foundation and the spines, if you were, of the basket of culture. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about like Ivan Illich's work and Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. And I feel like so um, something that's been happened, something that has happened in the modern era um, and by modern, I would say, um, like, you know, the the formation of nation states as like our main political, uh, bo- you know, borders or whatever, um, is that we've sort of um, con- continuous, continually off put social norms to the state over time. Sure. And so instead of expecting our neighbors to uphold social norms or our family members or extended family or community or tribe or whatever we just say you know we'll, we'll just either sue them or we'll take take them to court or they'll go to jail and the the state will handle enforcing social norms and i just feel like you give up so much when you don't um take some responsibility for embodying whatever those norms are mm-hmm. you just you lose so much and i think people are just now coming to grips with that um and fundamentally, I think culture is a, is a shit. I've, I've come up to this realization only very recently, but I fundamentally, I think culture is a shared sense of what is sacred and what is profane. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, you know, there are certain things that we think we sh- have this shared understanding that this is a good and this is a not this is not good. We want to avoid this other thing, behavior, activity, I don't know, ty- type of living or whatever. And it's really hard to move forward if one, you don't share that with others. It's really hard to like figure out how to move forward if we don't even know really what's good and share that idea. And it also kind of robs people of their agency, both in the sense of taking care of themselves or being self-reliant, but also the sense that creating culture is something you do by 
by enacting it, by embodying it. And so it's this one of these things where culture is getting lost in this process of just assuming, you know, the state can take over. Um, and so I think of like Ivan Illich and conviviality and it's like sitting around and having a meal together. This is the act of creating culture, um, caring about your neighbor and not just saying and the the uh, Doomer Optimists are, um, there's several book clubs reading Wendell Berry's The Need to Be Whole. Mm -hmm. And there's something here about standing up for your actual neighbor when it when some something unjust is happening to them as opposed to saying let's make a top-down policy that solves the problem of justice in the whole country right. which is which just seems to be like kind of a form of spreadsheet brain where it's like you know let's look at the statistics and let's make sure that there's the state enforces justice and something's really lost if you're not there on the ground noticing when something is unjust and standing in and having the courage to do that that's like the act of culture being created is the, are those moments. Well, and they know that that's going to be death by committee. So 90% of the time they can throw money at it and then it doesn't get done. So I know the concerns of my community, not city community, but my direct community, the folks that I know, and it's going to be a lot, lot better than somebody else knows. One way to really feel a sense of agency and efficacy in building culture is just working on a scale that's knowable, like building a relationship and loyalty and trust within a knowable, like, you know, Dunbar number type community of people who you can like actually know them individually and you know the outcome and you know when their behavior is good and you know when something unjust is happening. You know, just this, just this knowability is such a huge part of this, you know, we don't really even know how to navigate half the stuff in the world because it's so opaque to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's that's exactly true. Um, so what's what are some of the stuff that you were doing boots on the ground down there in Uruguay to build a community? Yeah, so um we have a couple of um uh we have a couple of different types of community um down here. One is our kids' friends, and this is you know this common it's in some ways I feel embarrassed some of the times when I'm like telling people um some of my like insights because it's just like if I think about how my parents did things or their parents all of this is just like common sense so but I'm just gonna say it anyways because it feels like sometimes we've lost some common sense but my kids friends parents you know we find ways to make friends with other young families whose kids are around the same age so the kids can play together they go to school together or they go to activities together. My kids are in all sorts of activities in the town. They go to the public school, um, which some people do. Um, I have opinions about um, schooling and, and education in general, but um, part of the re reason we moved here because it was because the schools are so wholesome and, and nice and a great experience for our kids to you know learn a different language and culture, but um, make friends. Um, we have made some friends through the field school insofar as we built the field school to uplift local practitioners, whether that's like agroecological small farmers or natural builders, um, people who are just doing alternative and sometimes they're like old school conservative environmentalists and sometimes they're relatively new, like ecological ethic, um, getting back into like, like new homesteading similar to the US. And we, we built it we built the school to sort of um, meet those people, find out what they need help with on their 
projects, have the students come volunteer for them. And that the, the field school has actually helped us solidify some relationships and build um, some relationships with people we probably wouldn't have explicitly become friends with without that project. Mm -hmm. um, and now we know their project and they're happy to host students because they get volunteer work and we also pay them for their time for organizing volunteer work. Um, and now, you know, we we show up for each other that way. And then there's another third kind of group, which is um, there are a lot there's a there's a lot of informal economics that happen here. A lot of people host classes that where you kind of pay out of pocket. They host them out of their their house. My kids are in this yoga class that's just out of somebody's house. And it's like a friend of a friend. Um, and we have friends who have a, who've opened a children's library. Um, and we're going to go there tomorrow. They have a, um, they basically just opened it themselves, this couple, and it's all just run on donation. So there's like these informal economies. We're making community with people by like showing up to their, their various projects and yeah. just like showing up and going, we're going to the library. We're taking books out. We're donating We're they have a big celebration for their four year anniversary tomorrow. We're going to be there, you know, just showing up for people and like being there. Um, when they make an effort to put something out into the world, into the community, you want to see more of that, you got to show up. And, right. um, and so we're, so that we've been doing that and that's, it's just so rewarding to, to see their projects succeed through the act of everybody showing up and supporting it kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's nice, it's a nice way to build a relationship. You're also doing something real. You're not just making a friendship about like, you know, sitting around talking about things you agree about, but instead like we're here together. You know, we brought the student group to work with this library, for example, and the student group came they painted the outside of it because they needed a new coat of paint. And, sure. you know, it's like we're, we're working on a project together and um, that makes them happy. Um, it's it's great for us to see, you know, to contribute because we believe in their project. And, you know, it's just a virtuous cycle that way. Yeah, that's that's building social capital. We also we borrowed the the Bitcoin term, term proof of work. It's also proof mm. of work because you are, you have their back. You've got skin in the game. They know you have skin in the game. So then later on you'll have that uh, reciprocity. Right. Right. And, right. um, and you know, like my, my neighbor hurt his back, can't, can't till his garden. So I went and tilled his garden, not because, not because I expect to get anything back, but because of the proof of work of our our relationship. And it's surprising with with everything going on and people so isolated and in social media is their community, right? If you ask people, yeah. I was pulling some graphics from Pixabay for you know the free thing where I can get free graphics for a community. Mm -hmm. And I typed it in community into search. And 90% of it was uh, electronic community. And it's like, yeah, oh, wow. that's, that's not, that's not the community I'm looking for in this context. Right. Yeah. So how do you take those, the next step and take that to, and build traditions? Right. Yeah. I mean, so obviously like we're, we're moderns. Right. And so um, it's not, I don't think it's necessary, like I said before, to really like go return to some period of time in the past. But um, tradition's context specific, you know, I mean, I think here in Uruguay, um, it's, uh, I, you know, I think the the people I've been um, making friends with on Twitter recently, a lot of them are religious um, mm -hmm. and more traditional 
Um, and so they probably wouldn't be super thrilled with <laughs> this description that I'm going to give, but I'm going to say it anyways. Uruguay has a long tradition of being secular, but it was kind of weird how it happened. And I don't know all of the details of the history, but I do know it was like over a hundred years ago when the country secularized all of the national holidays, but right on top of the already existing holidays like Easter and Christmas. Um, right. So they're like, you know, tourism week or day of the family. So in some ways it was like, um, it was like acknowledging that we take Christmas off to spend time with our families and anyone who's Christian can do that on day of the family. Mm -hmm. um, but anyone who's not still is practicing being with their family that day. And so sure. there was a, there's a weird thing that happened here where like Christian traditions got secularized, but kind of stayed intact because they didn't really demolish the whole, uh, the, all of it. They just sort of labeled it something different and more inclusive and kept all of the activities without calling it explicitly Christian. Um, and so there's like a really big culture here of, um, I mean, it's the most atheist country in Latin America, but there's a lot of Christians still, a lot of practicing Christians. But there's also just like, I think, a Christian morality underlying um, the culture here, which is like reciprocity, um, you know, neighborliness, um, especially there's like a small town culture of like, you don't want to have a bad reputation. Oh, yeah. um, you have a bad yeah. reputation in a small town, it will bite you in the ass, you know? Um, and um, yeah, I think like this kind of like mutual solidarity or being there for one another. Um, there's also like a kind of culture of voluntary poverty here that's really interesting. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you know much about Jose Mujica, um, but he was a former president of Uruguay. And he had a reputation in the world press of being like the, the world's poorest president, but it was because he gave away most of his sal salary, like 90% of his salary. And he said, you know, I don't need this big of a salary. I'll just continue living on my, he lives on a little flower farm outside of the main city, Montevideo. He had like this three-legged dog, Manuela. He drove this <laughs> old VW bug and never updated his car or anything. And he was like a former leftist gorilla who then there was like a period of dictatorship where he was in jail, like in solitary confinement for 12 years. And then, you know, sort of came, went into politics, became a senator, became a president. And, you know, he said things like, you know, I'm I'm not poor. The people who feel like they need to fill the emptiness in their soul with consumerism, they're the poor ones. You know, mm -hmm. I'm I'm rich. I'm rich in my flower farm and my family and my dog and my you know I have everything I need and my contentment is is wealth and so I was thinking like wow a country to be able to elect somebody who says something like that that's radical like before we came here and uh and since we came here I realized like yeah there is a culture of like um I think not just voluntary poverty but there really just is not I know I'm sure like some Uruguayan leftists might or like, you know, hardcore leftists might disagree with me, but there is so much less classism here than there is anywhere I've ever been in the world. And sure. honestly, I think the U.S. doesn't have a ton of classism. There's a lot of like ability to mix across classes in the U.S. I was surprised by that when I traveled around the world. There's like huge barriers to mm -hmm. mixing across classes in a lot of countries. But in Uruguay, it is just so, there is so much acceptance across class. There's an ex 
want to be too ostentatious with your wealth. Um, and I feel like that is under uh, fundamentally like a Christian virtue. And so anyways, all of that are like, are like uh, traditional cultural artifacts that have made their way into the culture here that I think are, um, are worth continuing on and worth saving. And I, and I, my sense is that they come from like a Christian morality and a, and a Christian sense of like the sacred and the profane. Um, I doubt that m some of my um atheist friends would agree with me but that's the conclusion i've come to i you know i think that a lot of this stuff really we're, we're a judeo-christian western people are judeo-christian and in culture you know it's it's really hard to to break that cultural programming even if you don't practice going yeah. to church purpin the guy i started with the podcast with he became orthodox and now he's on a monastic path and he determined that he wanted more than community, he wanted fellowship. So yep. he was like, Purple was like, hey, you know, this isn't going far enough for me. He became Orthodox. He moved to the the inner city in Kansas City where there there's a Orthodox church and a big community. And now he's on the monastic path and he's uh, he's at the monastery right now. And he may not wow. come back. So yeah. if he fits in, um, he won't come back. <laughs> so I just think like in general, the the a path toward service and interdependence is actually um necessary and i've been and what however you define that but interdependence being reliable mm -hmm, to other mm -hmm. people but caring for other people and i mean i think it's just completely necessary part of the human condition and and to think that it's not as silly i mean i was arguing with someone recently um i don't remember what i said but they were saying um you know being able to oh i said you know the vast majority of people in a healthy culture, the vast majority, so more than 50%, probably more like 60, 70, I don't know exactly the numbers, should ha should be having children um, for a society to keep reproducing itself, basically. It sure. only reproduces itself if you have children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, somebody was arguing back to me, you know, I can, I should be able to choose to do whatever I want to do. And that's not selfish. And I was like, well, I mean, yes, but it is kind of the definition of selfishness to to think that you're just an atomistic independent actor who has no responsibility to anyone and who's who who and you don't expect anyone to have a responsibility to you. I mean that's that's just it's very dysfunctional and a lot of people think that way. Um right. and it really just doesn't work because people try try it and then they just keep butting up against limits where you really do need to be inter interdependent. You have to rely on people. Sometimes you're down on your luck. Sometimes you get sick, whatever it is, you know, you have to rely on others or be reliable. Um, so just going into it, knowing that that's a necessary part of like a functioning life is, um, is I think less uh, painful because I think a lot of people go in thinking I should be able to do whatever I want. And then they make choices that aren't toward service or interdependence towards others. And they get frustrated because they keep hitting roadblocks because they are just thinking they can completely themselves and it's just impossible really mm -hmm. or they constantly search for meaning and then that is the that is meaning but it's so anti right anti for better words anti-american right so yeah <laughs> it's yep. definitely not american to think like that at this point so it, it's interesting so what are other some of the other tips you have for uh, building traditions and culture that way yeah, so um, another thing I've been thinking a lot about um, recently, 
is the idea of family and marriage as an institution for building culture. Um, so Mary Harrington is a British author, and she just wrote a book called Feminism Against Progress. And, and she and I become friendly uh, via Twitter, and she interviewed me for the end of her book. Um, and basically, her argument is that um, economic incentives and technology, now without getting into all the details of what I mean by that, are really what have made things hard on women and marriages and family, um, mm -hmm. more so than anything like the patriarchy. Um, it's really the incentives of of work outside the home um and like you know wage wage labor and and you know this kind of expectation that we're just independent actors atomistic actors like we were saying and um one way to i think rebuild that in the modern era without going back to like the 50s or without going back to the point before women had the right to vote or anything like that yeah. is to um Think of them, think of marriage as um, a culture building institution and to think of marriage as um, as as a tool, a social tool to um, to kind of build a project together, a life together and to, if possible, um, make the family part of your life's vocation. And by that, I mean, you know being independent actors and just having our the, i think the way marriage is approached now is you're two independent actors your career is primary having a, a marriage and kids is kind of like top of your larger life's vocation which is to have a career to i guess make as much money before you die or something hmm. um and instead to think about marriage as the primary vocation and project of life um and to think of work as secondary, um, but to think about like raising your kids as the central project of your life, um, building a home, building a culture of your family out of which you you expect your kids to then take those that culture into the world. Um, like in our case, we're um, we bought this land that we're trying to develop into something that could potentially be a home for our kids if they want it um we right now my Patrick my husband is out there we have this old building on the property I think it's from the 20s 1920s um and he's out there like renovating it and we're going to use um that building as like a as like a um hangout room and a, and a music space for our kids but you know eventually could be a building on the property we're just slowly building um sort of a legacy on this property that's like the way we think about it, and this is very traditional, a traditional way to think about it, as a, this is, we're building a legacy that, so that our gene, it's not like, sounds very biological, but our genes get passed on, the more we set our kids up for success in having their own families and, and succeeding in their lives. And mm -hmm. so um, our project is primarily about raising our kids well, um, educating them well, passing on our family culture, but also developing this property and potentially maybe a, another property, I don't know, um, for them and getting them set up in their lives. And so just thinking about building a legacy, I think is like a, is a total mind shift from the way most people think about marriage now, which is, you know, I guess like some kind of way in which you feel self-fulfillment or something, but right. instead to think, wow, look at actually how romantic it can be to think about like I, 
my strengths and his strengths together making these children and making this project on this land and this property um we're actually much stronger together with building this project than we would be as independent economic actors i don't know i guess making as much money or getting as much notoriety as possible in our careers or whatever mm -hmm. um and so yeah that's one way that we're like kind of looking back to a tradition but bringing it into the modern era of thinking like you know i really just want to i, I want to think about our marriage as a project and i want to think about um the legacy i can leave my kids you know wow that's great. It's funny to watch uh, folks engage with you and then you say something like that and they go, right, ring, right, ring, right, ring. I know. Nuts. It's hilarious. I know. I know. And like, I, I honestly think like well, so much of my young adult development has been like left leaning in the sense of like, you know, the economy is, is built against us, you know, probably my earlier days, I would say it's all capitalism or whatever, but it's you, it, I wouldn't probably use those terms anymore, but it's like, it is, it is out there to really kind of exploit and alienate us fundamentally mm -hmm. the way that it's set up now. And so taking back these institutions is empowerment against that against the atomization and alienation brought on by the economy and technology and so i don't understand how that's not in accordance with like all my values that made me quote unquote left wing when i was younger you know but mm -hmm. now it's right wing to say something like build a legacy for your kids you know right, get them right. set up in life i don't know i really just can't keep track of like these labels you know and the and the goalposts keep moving right and it's yeah. like, well, no, you, you can't have stuff now. <laughs> no, I know, I know. You got to eat eat the bugs. So yes, you know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or even just owning property, like, you know, a lot of people say, oh, oh you're just so privileged to be able to own property. Like, mm. our land was not very expensive. I made thirteen thousand dollars as a grad student. My husband made mid five figures as a high school teacher. We were not wealthy um in in by any stretch of the imagination and we were able to do this because you know and of course i'm still relatively in the world population in the top one percent of course in comparison to the world but relative to most other like middle class americans i think a lot of people just want to tell themselves that the whole structural system has to change for them to have any agency and for mm -hmm. me the big message of a lot of the exploration i'm doing is to say if i can do it a lot of people can do it Right. Um, a vast majority of people can do it. We, we have not come from any special privilege relative to a lot of other people who are very similar to us. I would say probably the vast majority of Americans and um, people do really want to make excuses and they don't want to say they don't want to think about all the ways in which they could potentially have agency. And it's really if any if my message is anything, it's just empower them to say, you know, it's really not that hard and it's actually quite rewarding once you try it wow that's great excellent any final thoughts um yeah you know i've been thinking about education a little bit recently i might as well just get it out while i'm thinking about it while i have the platform um so um i there i i think that the i guess i should say this as a backup the the building of tradition is um is something that should be um should be uh place specific so mm -hmm. like i was saying in uruguay we have these traditions that are place specific to this place i would say in the us um i might 
like join a church like I w probably would have already joined a church to try to find some of these people who have shared the same value system as me. So sure. again, I think it's like the the strategy should be place specific. I feel the same way about um, education. Um, I think in some places the education system is so messed up, and I think I, I think it's probably true in in like Chicago where I'm from mm -hmm. that I would homeschool. Um, but my school here is wonderful. And I think sending my kids here is a really good choice. Um, and so I think the main thing I'm trying to get another main point I'm trying to get across when it comes to um, building your own traditions is that there is not a one size fits all answer. It's going to be locally specific. It's going to have to do with what resources you have available to you in your person, in your marriage, in your area, you know. Um, and so I think that's really important because people sometimes say they want to be told like a kind of list, do, do this, this, and this, go do homeschooling, do homestead. So I think, and for a lot of people living in a city and you can have a small little container garden and that's fine. That's enough for you. And then you, you mm -hmm. get involved in knowing your farmer and that kind of thing. There's a huge ways to be, do permaculture in the suburbs. You don't right. have to get onto some land. Um, you don't have to necessarily join a church there's like an active Grange organization that gets you into the kind of culture that you want. So um, I would just say to encourage people to like sort of pick, pick a place, commit to it, pick some people and start, you know, developing traditions that like res. Um, but, you know, based on the resources of your specific place. So my, my kids go to school, but the education question is going to be specific to what, whatever you have if if it's really bad where you are um the way i see building educate or building tradition and education is i would love to see and i see it's happening already people start homeschooling and then they start built, forming homeschooling co-ops co and they start to form these like more regular like forest schools or then they have mm -hmm. like these these dates where people are kind of parents are teaching classes and they're all like elective classes and those are like turning and forming into schools themselves and sometimes it's then a school that's three days a week or something like that. And sure. um, these are, this is like the way alternative institutions get built. And it starts with first saying, I just can't do the mainstream institution. I have to get out. There's a period of adaptation and then the people kind of find each other and, and build together. And so that's really the, that's the theory of change of how the traditions get built. It's that way. It's like, like uh, you know, first you, first you secede from something then you find the others who did it or find others who resonate with you. And then you, you know, build something alternative to that. Having said that, you know, Neil Clark is a guy on Twitter who lives in, in Maine and his public school is worth sending his kids to. And he says worth saving. I feel yeah. the same way about our public school here in Uruguay. I think going to this public school is an act of institution building itself. If you can get into this institution and it's worth um not seating then you get into it and you get involved and you get on the school board and you um you really go all in on like built, putting all of your resources as an individual or a family behind that institution and so um you know anyways there's just not a one-size-fits-all approach to tradition building it's got to be you know fundamentally you really are the one who has the agency and the ability to 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 decide for yourself if it resonates with you and where to where to put your resources and where to be interdependent because you you're gonna you're gonna necessarily I said earlier you have to be interdependent so you might as well pick and choose wh who you want to be interdependent with. That's awesome. 
Yeah, I think that, uh, and especially if the kids do stay in a public school, is develop a life of learning, and right, we just don't, we just don't see that. So you know, I mean, I used to read voraciously when I was a kid, even when I didn't have to. So, right, but but right. maybe it's because of I had less. Yeah, you know, maybe yeah. I I had that space. And giving space and then giving the sense of place and things like that as well um, right. can help right. build that in in kids because that's right. everybody's missing the the sense of meaning. And totally. part of it is 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 the sense of place, the sense of the seasons and everything else. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I would say like with school, part part of the reason we moved here is I was studying the sociology of education and <laughs> looking at like the ways in which schools were approaching students, like specifically industrial, like large scale public schools, like there's all these coming out, like where standardized tests were, are basically like determining how schools get funded. Mm-hmm. So then you're just teaching to the test and it's just, it is the most spreadsheet brain thing imaginable. Like everybody just has to conform to this very narrow set of um, measurable uh, outcomes that do, do not at all like um, line up with the variance in kids' interests or curiosity or personalities or disposition. Um, and for a lot of kids are really a difficult way to learn, like learning these spreadsheet type standardized sure. test type type learning and then if they don't conform to that type of learning they put them on these drugs like it's just mm-hmm. widespread um mm-hmm. putting kids on on like psychoactive drugs early in their lives um that was terrifying to me and so the other thing just to think about with schools and and other institutions in general is the first step you got to do when you're trying to to build a exposure to to things that will cause you active harm and then once you've gotten yourself out and you're just like in um in survival mode then you then you have you have to get your feet under you and this is like this is I'm like describing part of our journey moving to Uruguay mm-hmm. and once you've gotten some stability got your feet under you then you can move toward something that is uh you ha- your your podcast thriving the future you're not just surviving you're thriving at that point you're seeking right. out things that resonate with you and we're finally starting to get into that mode with our kids um, you know, after having three young kids and moving to a new country and, and starting a business and, you know, I'm I, talking backwards, I make it sound really easy, but the, the process of adaptation of like first minimizing exposure before we left Chicago, um, there were like, there, the Tom, Donald Trump was just elected and there was like a palpable sense of, of like team sports, you know, like, oh, sure. like, neighbors against neighbors there was this Mm. um shooting in this neighborhood that we're from in chicago between an off-duty police officer um and a guy who was not from the neighborhood a white off-duty police officer and a black guy driving through the neighborhood uh and there was just this sense of like you know like this could erupt into like not feeling like a safe place to be with kids Mm. and um it's like leveled off since then and it's not doesn't feel as palpable but um, yeah, the first thing is get out of these institutions, get away from these places where you are could be actively harmed just by being around. And then after that, try to seek these alternatives that are 
um, potentially places to look for for tradition and and look to the past and um, and I think just be a model too. That's another piece of advice. Wow. Just the other day, I saw old videos of my family members. Um, I remember this. There were my there's like you know my my the generation older than me. They're like putting pictures on um, and videos on Facebook to try to like um, you know keep capture some of the family videos and. I remember when we went to Christmas at my grandma's house, all the adults who were like my age in their thirties, um, young thirties, like, but you know, yeah, mostly in their late twenties and thirties, they're all, there's videos. They're just dancing the mm -hmm. whole evening dancing and the kids are playing in the other room or, you know, whatever Nerf guns or whatever they're, they got for Christmas. And that was us. We were, we were playing around, but everybody else was just dancing all night and other people are sitting and talking to each other. I, this wasn't that long ago where this was the culture where everybody's just in a living room dancing and laughing and, you right. know, I'm drinking and smoking cigarettes and all this kind of stuff. And I just think it would be cool um, to kind of go out on a limb and try to make that kind of culture happen, even if it feels awkward for our generation, you know? Um, and so I was just thinking that the other day I saw those videos and I just thought, you know, next Christmas, if I'm around, I should just put some music on and see if someone will dance and, uh, you know you can take a leap of faith sometimes with those kind of cultural things people want to have fun right. you know um and it just takes a little bit of some weirdos to try to bring it back but i think people will come along if you're sincere and joyful enough i don't know so yeah, i'll let you great. know if i, if I try if that's it, great if it fails or succeeds. <laughs> well thank you thank you for being the guest today yeah yeah thank you for inviting me sure hit the recording thank you for listening to thriving the future podcast like us and follow us on your favorite podcast app next time on thriving the future podcast coming up on thriving the future podcast roman from foxtwinhollow.com also foxtwinhollow on twitter will join me to talk about connecting kids back with foraging and nature. And I like the quote, children who hunt and forage are more appreciative, respectful of others, and involved in the community. And also Homestead Padre is back, and we talk about living with depression on the homestead. That's coming up on Thriving the Future podcast.